You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Spade. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I'd like to begin today with George Dew. And we should all remember George Dew. He's one of the pirates that sailed on the Second Pacific Adventure under the French pirates like Francois Grenet and Mathurin de Marais. George Dew's national heritage is somewhat in question. It's possible he was a Frenchman. See, most of what we know about his piratical career comes from Ravno de Lusanne, and Lusanne records his name as Georges Dou. That's D-apostrophe-H-O-U-T. But I don't think that's accurate. I believe that Georges Dou was an English pirate that was operating out of, well, the West Indies in general. You know, Tortuga, Campeche, the Mosquito Coast, and Port Royal. As one of the last Brethren of the Coast, I think that when the English began to crack down on piracy in places like Port Royal, George Dew just started sailing under French captains. This was not at all uncommon. The French were still handing out commissions, after all. But after he returned from the Second Pacific Adventure, George Dew settled down in Bermuda. And just a couple of years later, in 1692, he obtained another commission. Not as a privateer this time, but as a naval mercenary. George Dew and his ship Amy were to sail alongside Thomas II to provide guard duty for some English slaving ships. That was the beginning of Thomas II's first voyage to the Indian Ocean. Now, we all know that George Dew and Thomas II were separated in a storm, and that George Dew made his way to South Africa. But he was detained 
by the Dutch. They had no patience for this Englishman who had what they saw as a clearly counterfeit commission and who was several hundred miles away from the stated destination on the commission. So the Dutch impounded his ship Amy. They arrested George Dew, and they shipped him off to Amsterdam to stand trial. Now, he never really did stand trial. There were some hearings, but before his official trial could begin, the English stepped in and rescued him. Even if the governor of Bermuda was a corrupt criminal complicit in piracy, and he was, he was still a royally appointed governor, and he had given George Dew a commission. Even if it wasn't exactly legal, it was real. George Dew had done nothing wrong. So, after a few twists and turns, George Dew returned to Bermuda. But he didn't stay long, really only long enough to procure another ship. By 1695, he was back in the West Indies up to some of his old tricks. Now, we don't know if George Dew stopped at Port Royal or Tortuga. If he did, he probably did use an alias. But if he did, he would have found that times had changed. Tortuga and Port Royal were imperial cities now. They were centers of trade that had all of these newly built manor houses, although built in an old-world fashion. Those houses were filled with fat, rich slave owners and minor nobles, and, you know, minor back in Europe, but here they were captains of industry. The taverns, he would have remembered, filled with pirates, swilling rum, and scantily clad women singing body songs, well, well, actually, the taverns were still there. The rum and the women were still there as well, but the clientele had changed. Instead of pirates, there were guards, there were soldiers, and a ton of men from the Royal Navy. Now, I have lived in a few rough neighborhoods in my life, mostly because I was poor and they were cheap. But I was one of the people in those neighborhoods who, you know, rode a bike a lot and probably had a $7 cup of coffee in my hand and maybe some vintage vinyl in my backpack. At the time, I didn't see myself as a force of uh, gentrification. But when I look back now, it's obvious. But of course, pretty soon, those neighborhoods got too expensive for me. Before long, they were filled with yoga studios and hair salons and high-fashion boutiques. And I bring this up because I wonder if George Dew did indeed visit Tortuga or Port Royal, if he felt something similar, if he maybe had the same kind of realization. See, the Brethren of the Coast, pirates in general, they brought into these rough frontier towns money, and a lot of it. And with that money followed businesses, you know, shops to facilitate all of their wants and needs, at the time mostly rum and women and gambling, and coffee, and other mind-altering substances, not unlike some of those rough neighborhoods I lived in. But then, one thing led to another. The rum got better and more expensive, mixed into fancy drinks and fancy glasses. Their one-time gambling dens turned into hair salons high-fashion boutiques, and eventually you have these old-world-style mansions popping up. The point is, 
The West Indies were no longer the place that they once had been. George Dew might not have known it when he set sail from Bermuda, but he would have figured it out soon enough. So instead of recruiting pirates in Tortuga, as he may have expected to do, George Dew found himself on Barbados trying to recruit a crew. A pirate crew, bound for Africa in 1695. This is episode 216, Holding Patterns. George Dew and his Barbadian crew never made it to Africa. His ship was hit by a storm shortly after leaving Barbados, and the crew chickened out. They decided they did not want to sail across the Atlantic, and they wanted to go home. So George Dew was forced to go back to Bermuda. Now, later on in life, George Dew would start a successful law practice there. Eventually, he'd get elected to the local council and build a big house that is today called the Old Rectory, which is still there, actually. But the fact that he tried to get to Africa in 1695 should tell us something. Because we all know what's happening in Africa. This ingathering of pirates. Major events were underway, and somehow, through whatever channels they had, word was spreading. And a ton of pirates were going to make it to Africa. Later in 1695 and into 1696, a flood of pirates would arrive at and around Madagascar. But all of them were too late. Now, they would cause a lot of their own trouble, and we're going to talk about all of it, but today we're concerned with the pirates who made it in time for the main event, all of whom are pirates and pirate ships that we've met before. First, you have the six-gun Portsmouth Adventure, under Captain Joseph Farrow. Under Farrow was the quartermaster, a Dutch pirate named Dirk Chivers. Then there was the eight-gun Dolphin, under Captain Richard Wunt. You will all recall Richard Wunt as Thomas II's one-time quartermaster. Wunt is unique on this voyage because he actually owned the Dolphin. He purchased her in Carolina after his last cruise to the Red Sea, aboard the Amity. And that brings us, of course, to our third ship, the Amity, under Captain Thomas II, with her pilot, John Ireland. And we should remember the man who was probably the quartermaster of the Amity now, a man named Richard Bobbington. That was one squadron, one fleet, heading to Africa. You might notice, though, that all of those ships were small. You know, six or eight guns and somewhere between 100 and 130 tons, carrying maybe as many as 60 men. They had room for more, but they hadn't recruited more in America. But they were fast ships, and together, three ships carrying six guns each could do more damage than one ship carrying 18. But there was a second squadron of pirates heading out from North America in the spring of 1695. That included a 16-gun, 200-ton, 100-man brigantine called the Pearl, under Captain William Mason. You'll remember William Mason as the pirate who sailed alongside Robert Culliford, under William Kidd, back in 1689. One of the pirates who led the mutiny 
against Captain Kidd and stole the Blessed William. Their subsequent pirate voyage to the Indian Ocean saw the crew attacked by Mughal soldiers and Robert Culliford in an Indian prison. We also should remember not to confuse William Mason with William May, and we will get to William May. The other ship in that squadron, just two ships here, was the 100-ton, 10-gun, 70-man bark Susanna, under Captain Thomas Wake. The Susanna also carried another pirate who is, not yet, but will soon be of note, Tempest Rogers. That's most of the fleet here, but I'd like to make one correction. A few episodes back, I made mention of a man named John Kelly. I told you that John Kelly was a pirate from Bachelor's Delight who made his way to St. Augustine Bay on Madagascar, and that's all true, but my timing was off. He was not yet at Madagascar at this point in our story. He was rotting in that same Indian prison, in Bombay probably, that housed Robert Culliford. They weren't arrested at the same time or for the same offense, but there were a lot of pirates in that particular prison. Those five ships, the Susanna, the Pearl, the Dolphin, the Portsmouth Adventure, and Amity, well, they would have made a fearsome pirate fleet in any era. With an already famous captain like Thomas II to lead them, they would have made history regardless. But all of those ships were overshadowed. They were on their way to Africa to join the ship that overshadowed them, the Fancy under Captain Henry Every. The Fancy was, well, we've discussed at length what a fine ship she was. I would say she was probably the best pirate ship in the world, especially since at this point, Bachelor's Delight was out of commission. I would say that Fancy was probably one of the best pirate ships of all time, or at least of the Golden Age. I'd put her up against the Queen Anne's Revenge or really any of the Nassau pirates any day, and Every would have a good chance of coming out on top. The Oxford, which you probably don't remember, was Henry Morgan's ship sent over from England, and she might have had fancy beat, but the Oxford was destroyed in a magazine explosion before even setting out, so fancy takes that one as well. We are going to catch up with Every and the Fancy at St. Augustine Bay. I can't tell you what I would give to have an account from a pirate on any of these ships. William Dampier would be ideal, but even just a journal or just a, a ship's log would be great. We don't actually know that the Fancy stopped off at St. Augustine Bay. We do know that at some point on this leg of the journey, they bought a bunch of cattle and sold a bunch of slaves. It's possible they could have done so at uh, Reunion Island, to the east, but unlikely, given the wind patterns. Some will tell you they stopped off at St. Mary's Island, in the northeast, where Adam Baldridge had his pirate harbor, but they didn't. At least, Adam Baldridge, a man who kept extensive records and never, ever shied away from admitting other pirates had stopped there, doesn't record the fancy at St. Mary's at this time. Most historians agree that St. Augustine Bay is the most likely place they would have stopped. It was the easiest place to reach given wind patterns in that region at this time of year, but 
It also had everything they needed. Water and food and supplies, a bunch of other pirates from both the Signet and Bachelor's Delight and other ships, and then, of course, the women. We can't ever know for sure, but it's almost certain they stopped at St. Augustine, and this, this is Henry Avery's arrival at Libertalia. Of course, the myth of Libertalia is exaggerated, and even the name was probably invented some thirty years later by an author, but this is it. A beachside tropical paradise on a relatively secluded cove. They had fresh fruit, rum punch, Spanish guitar in the background, and of an evening roaring fires with fresh beef on the spit, and of course, the women. I should, though, say sexual freedom, not just the women. A lot of these guys were gay, or otherwise not, you know, straight. But a lot of them were there, and stuck around, for the women. And the first image that conjures might be an unpleasant one. You know, young women from nearby tribes kidnapped and forced into slavery, but that's probably not the case here at all. Maybe something like that was happening up at St. Mary's, but not at Libertalia. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. See, these pirates were in an alliance with and under the protection of a Malagasy queen. Her name was Antavaratra Rina. Now, this period in Madagascar was still prehistory in that they didn't keep any written records. They're about to. I mean, in like a couple of years, they're going to start keeping written records, and it's actually the son of this queen who's going to begin that practice. He is half of the reason that we know about this queen and Tavaracha Rahina. The other half is a man named Binbo. Admiral Binbo, as it happens, or would be, but not the Admiral Binbo. This was his son. He won't show up for a couple of years yet. 
The point is, Antavaratra Rahina ruled this stretch of coastline, where Libertalia was located. She, in her alliance with the pirates at St. Augustine Bay, well, she was at war with the Highland peoples inland in Madagascar, and the queen had a policy. She utilized the oldest form of alliance in the world, the marriage alliance. She would marry off young women from her lands to the pirates at Libertalia in the hope and with the promise that they would stay there in her lands. Not only that, that they would bring in muskets and cannons and gunpowder and all manner of western weapons to help her fight her war. Now, these were marriages. These women may not have had the freedoms enjoyed by modern women, but we shouldn't picture delicate little flowers, you know, voiceless victims trapped in unwilling marriages with a bunch of barbarous pirates. They were part of the community. The Malagasy there, under the queen, were part of the community, and she did not take kindly to her people being abused. All that said, even many modern Malagasy people live in a deeply patriarchal society with very defined gender roles, and they did so then as well. But they weren't slaves. They were wives. That's the world into which Henry Every, William May, John Guy, and the fresh-faced 18-year-old William Bishop, along with all of the rest of the crew of the fancy, lay anchor. And they stayed for one month. They took a few days' rest and relaxation, enjoying the charms of Libertalia, but then they set to collecting wood and water, to repairing and outfitting their ship, and to trading their slaves for cattle. Then, of course, salting the beef. Most important, though, to the pirates was news. Every knew very well that word was out there about his little venture. He wrote that open letter to every English ship captain. He probably did not write the pirate verses, but they were already widely known. Henry Every was certainly here, hoping to hear word that other pirates had arrived to sail with him. But as of yet, none had reached Libertalia. Naturally, some of the men from Libertalia would have signed up with Henry Every, although not anywhere near a majority of them. Once their month was up, though, Fancy set sail to the north, for the Comoros Islands that lay between Madagascar and mainland Africa at the very northern end of Madagascar. It was the logical place to stop, to see if any other pirates had made their way there. If someone was intending to head on over to St. Mary's, there's a very good chance they would have stopped at the Comoros Island. And they did, in fact, meet some pirates there. There was a French bark of maybe four guns, really a tiny, tiny ship, that had been roving the region for some time, flying English colors as it happened. But their bark was damaged, either in a storm or in a firefight, reports differ, but they had to make a landing at Wally Island. They had been there for a couple of weeks repairing their ship, when out of the blue this very fine frigate, also flying English colors, arrived and sent men ashore. I suspect that it was pretty immediately apparent that these were not navy men or you know, East Indiamen. This was a rough-looking crew to begin with. Remember all of those 
missing limbs and eyes from the naval hospital. But then, months at sea without a stop in a proper port, and they would have looked exactly like what they were. So the French approached the newcomers. About forty Frenchmen signed up to sail with Henry Every aboard the Fancy. And this point, here at the Comoros, is probably the strongest that the Fancy ever was in terms of men aboard. John Sparks, one of the pirates who would be tried a few years later, would claim in his deposition, quote, 170 in all, of whom 104 were English, 52 French, and 14 Danes. 170 men is quite the crew for any pirate ship in any era, but it still wasn't the fleet that Henry Every was hoping for. If he had any hope of capturing ships of real value, he was going to need more vessels by his side. And this put the fancy at an impasse. The Comoros Islands were about halfway between South Africa and the Gate of Tears. They could go ahead and sail on north. They could stay in the region and do some piracy and make money. But if they did, they would alert the authorities in the region that pirates were active and probably lose any chance they had at larger game, the really rich prizes. On the other hand, they could sail back to the south. They could retrace their steps back to Libertalia to check in if anybody had stopped by, and then, if not, they could sail back west to the Cape of Good Hope. In the end, they gambled and chose the latter. They sailed south. If they did stop in at Libertalia, which they would have, nobody had arrived on the scene as of yet. But a few weeks after leaving the Comoros, they spotted a ship that looked ripe for plunder. At this point, they were far enough from the Red Sea that a little bit of piracy wouldn't attract too much unwanted attention. Plus, by this point, they were in undeniably Dutch waters, and it would more than likely be chalked up to the Dutch. The ship that they spotted was recorded later on as a grab, and there's some debate as to just what type of ship it really was here, but it looks most likely to have been a Gurab. That's a ship from the East Indies, probably from, in this case, Malaya or maybe Indonesia. But it's a ship that incorporates local ship designs, Southeast Asian ship designs, with those from the Muslim Mediterranean world. Fancy did capture her, and probably some silk or some spices, but this wasn't a major haul. They were most likely most interested in whatever supplies had been on board. Following the capture of the Gurab, Fancy put in Johanna, South Africa. Now that's not Johannesburg. Johannesburg was inland at the time, and, you know, still is. Johanna was... Well, at the time, it lay in what is today part of Cape Town, but at the time was not part of Cape Town. See, the Cape of Good Hope, the actual Cape, is a peninsula, Cape Peninsula, kind of like a hook jutting out into the Atlantic. At the northern end of the peninsula, where ships coming from Europe or the Americas would most easily reach, was Cape Town. But to the south and the east of that Dutch settlement, 
on the coast of the bay created by that Cape Peninsula, what they called False Bay, was a settlement of native Africans. It was close to and really attached to the Dutch settlement, but it was segregated. They were servants and slaves of the Dutch, not allowed to live among them. These were people who had been colonized rather violently by white faces. People who were militarily unable to overcome the might of the Dutch forces in their home, but who were nonetheless hostile toward Europeans. As it happened, they didn't have the might to overcome the crew of the Fancy either. I mean, it's not like the Dutch are going to give them guns. But they were basically held hostage by the pirates of the Fancy. Now, they weren't raided. You know, there wasn't any rape or pillage or murder, at least not enough for the Dutch to have warranted a report on it. But that would have been counterproductive for the crew of the Fancy. They were there for two reasons. First, they wanted to gather any news of any other pirates who may have passed by. But more pressing, they needed to find medical care for one of their men. William May, not to be confused with William Mason, was one of the ringleaders of the mutiny, one of the leaders of the crew. And he was very ill. That's why Fancy put in at Johanna, to get him the care he needed to survive, and... They got it there. He may have been surrounded by a guard of heavily armed pirates, but the locals did provide William May with rest and medicine. It looked like he was going to recover, but then, almost on cue, disaster arrived on the scene. There was a ship in the East Indies in 1695 that terrified everyone. Wherever it happened to put in, it terrified the locals. The sailors on board the ship itself, her own crew, they were terrified of her. But pirates, pirates maybe more than anyone else. This was a warship, maybe more of what you would call an enforcer. She was a heavily armed East Indiaman, but not built for carrying cargo, built for carrying guns and enforcing the will of the East India Company. They called her Mocha. The Mocha is one of those ships that you may already have heard of. You certainly have if you've been reading ahead, but even if not, it's a famous vessel. We've yet to get to why it is so famous, but even at the time it was notorious. Everyone knew of the Mocha partly because she was such a terror of the Indian Ocean, but partly, especially in the case of men like the pirates, because of her captain, a man named Leonard Edgecombe. He was famous, and not for anything good. Edgecombe was a brutal man. In his book The Pirate Hunter, The True Story of Captain Kidd, Richard Zacks writes, quote, The Mocha frigate was a deeply unhappy ship. Morale was low, with the captain routinely flogging the men for trivial offenses. Edgecombe was stubborn, sadistic, and unusually unbalanced, even when judged by the lax 17th century standards for a captain's behavior. End quote. He then goes on to list some of those sadistic beatings, and there is... There's a lot of them to list. 
But they're all horrible. And we're going to talk about them, but not today. You just need to understand how terrifying the arrival of the Mocha would have been to anyone, but especially to the pirates. And Henry Every knew exactly what ship it was when the Mocha appeared on the horizon. He ordered the crew of Fancy to set sail as fast as they possibly could. He told them to run to get her underway, and maybe, maybe they could escape. And the men, they'd heard the stories of the Mocha as well. They jumped and they ran. Fancy was underway in mere minutes. And remember, she was a fast ship. The Fancy was out of sight even before the Mocha reached False Bay. Captain Edgecombe had, of course, spotted this frigate running away, but Mocha was not going to be able to catch her. So instead, Captain Edgecombe put in at Johanna. Imagine his surprise when he found a white, sick Englishman ashore. William May was still abed. His companions had left him behind. They'd had to. They would not have been able to get him on board fast enough to get away, but that doesn't change his situation. Captain Edgecombe questioned William May, especially about that very fine, very fast frigate he'd seen on the way in. He must have suspected it was the Charles II. Of course, May told him that they were mere traders, you know, merchants, certainly, certainly not pirates, but they just left him there. And it became clear to Leonard Edgecombe that William May was terrified. Not of him, but the pirates had left him, rather, the merchants, had left him in the care of these Africans. People who William May was certain would kill him, kill him if they were merciful, once the Mocha left and took their protection. So William May begged Captain Edgecombe to take him on board, to employ him, even just to put him to work for free, just please don't leave him there. Now, Edgecombe knew that William May was lying. He knew that William May was a pirate. I mean, why else would you stop here when Cape Town was just around the peninsula? Legally, given his suspicions, he should have arrested William May, taken him on board and taken him back to Bombay to rot in that same prison with Robert Culliford. But he didn't. Instead, he did exactly what William May feared most of all. Captain Edgecombe got on the mocha and left, left William May there all alone to his fate. Once he departed, Johanna, Captain Edgecombe sailed the mocha around the peninsula and on to Cape Town. And of course he inquired there about this very fine English frigate, but none of the Dutch had seen her. Still, he informed them that there were what Edgecombe believed to be pirates roaming the region, and that they appeared to be aboard a very, very powerful frigate. So the Dutch, in response, went out to their harbor. See, they had a ship there, sitting idle, called the Amy, a one-time pirate vessel that had belonged to none other than George Dew. If there was a pirate vessel active in the region, it's entirely possible it belonged to George Dew. See, 
He'd tried many times to reclaim his ship from the Dutch through legal and illegal means and failed. Every time. It looks like the Dutch thought he might finally have come for it himself. To forestall this end, the Dutch unloaded the guns and the gunpowder and the tackle, and then they burned the Amy. After two years, they destroyed her. Now, we know that George Dew wasn't going to make it to Africa. He tried, and had he made it, he might have tried to take the Amy, but George Dew was not the only pirate who attempted to make the coast of Africa. Those five ships under five pirate captains were coming to join forces with Henry Every, and by the time Mocha departed Cape Town, they were almost in his wake. Next time, well, next time, that pirate fleet under Henry Every, Thomas II, and all the rest is finally going to assemble. And they are going to engage in the greatest act of piracy the world had ever seen. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Live on in legend tonight.